pastor, and I want you to know how much I respect your pastor, Rick Owsley, and the tremendous work that the Lord is doing through him. Join me in thanking the Lord for your pastor and the great work that's been going on here all these years. He's like an oak tree, a cedar tree. He's such a roots go down deep in the community and up to the Lord, and, and you're the beneficiaries. So great to see so many friends here again, and uh, good to see Josh. And uh, we grew up in the same, my son grew up as, as friends with Josh in the neighborhood. And uh, so good to see what a beautiful family you have. You're blessed. And um, well, the uh, story that I'm going to talk about today is some history. But one of my favorite quotes is from Arthur Schlesinger Jr. was on John F. Kennedy's staff, Pulitzer Prize winning historian. And the quote is, history is to the nation what memory is to the individual. So have you ever met an individual who's lost their memory? It's sort of sad. Maybe they have Alzheimer's. They forgot who they are. They forgot who you are. Well, guess what? We have national Alzheimer's. Here we are, the freest country that the planet has seen, and we forgot how we got here. We forgot who we are. And so when we tell the history stories, it's sort of it's giving us our memory back. It's like, oh, that's who I am. That's what we are. That's what we, the blessings that we have, how rare they are. And uh, so some, some of the books I put together, uh, one is called The Original 13, where I read through all the colonial charters and all the state constitutions. Another one's called Miracles in American History, Times in Our Country's Past, where there's a crisis they pray and things turn around. And then another one today called Who is the King in America? And it's you. But um, I'm going to touch a little bit on, um, on that, but I thought I'd jump into one little slice of it, and that's the separation of church and state. And um, so... Uh, one of my books backfired. A nation founded on religious tolerance no longer tolerates the religion of its founders. Did you catch that? <laughs> anyway, so let's start with 1517, Martin Luther starts the Reformation. And 1529, 100,000 Muslims surround Vienna, Austria under Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. And um, he controls this whole huge area, which all used to be Christian, People forget there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. They were conquered. Uh, Egypt had been completely Christian for six centuries, evangelized by Mark that wrote the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, until the Muslims conquered it. Syria was completely Christian for six centuries, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. The name Christian was first used in Syria. And then the Turks converted to Islam, and they in invaded into what is today Turkey, all seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by Muslim Turks. And all the letters in the New Testament to Ephesus and Colossae and Galatia and Philippi and Corinth, all the cities were wiped out by the Turks. And then they conquer Constantinople, cut off the land routes to India. And that's when Columbus set sail looking for a sea route. And as the Muslims are conquering into Greece, all the Greek scholars are fleeing west with their Greek art and literature. We call this the Renaissance. And then the Greek scholars flee with their Greek New Testaments. And so now the Western Europeans can study the Bible in the original Greek language rather than just Latin. And so this causes there to be this reinterest in a lot of the words in the New Testament. And finally, they surround Vienna, Austria in 1529 with Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. So the Holy Roman Emperor is Charles V of Spain. And... Um, he has, uh, uh, by, by the way, here's a quote from Martin Luther. He says, the fight against the Turks must begin with repentance. We must reform our lives or we shall fight in vain. 
Our sins and ingratitude have earned God's wrath, so he justly gives us into the hands of the devil and, and the Turk. What's he talking about? Deuteronomy chapter 28, blessings and cursings. If a nation hearkens to the voice of the Lord, they will be above and not beneath, head and not the tail. If a nation does not hearken to the voice of the Lord, it says the stranger will come in amongst them and rise up above them, and they will be the head and you will be the tail. They will be above and you will be beneath. So how did God judge ancient Israel? He let the stranger come in, the Amalekite, Amalekite, Hittite, Moabite, Edomite, and they oppressed the children of Israel. And then when Israel repented, God raised up a deliverer. So here is Charles V, the most powerful guy on the planet. He controls Spain, the Netherlands, Italy, the Philippines are, na are named after his son, King Philip of Spain. And he controls all the New World. He's taken the gold from the New World to fit out his navy to stop the Muslims from taking over the Mediterranean. So the two most powerful kings on the planet are the Sultan and the King of Spain. And the King of Spain is faced with a double dilemma. Protestant Reformation on one hand, Muslim invasion on the other hand. And so he tries to stop the Muslim invasion for a bunch of years, it doesn't work, and he finally is forced to make a deal with the Protestants. It's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. It's the first treaty ever to recognize Protestants legally. I took a couple German classes, and uh, you, you know how to say 1555? It's 1555. <laughs> I think it sounds funny. Um, <clears throat> but in this treaty is a little Latin phrase, and it's cuios regio eus religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion. So in other words, look, Protestant king, believe whatever you want in your kingdom, Let's just work together against this Islamic invasion because they sort of want to kill us all. And it worked. It stopped the invasion. But in the next century, different kings decided to believe different things. And so you had northern Germany and Sweden were Lutheran, Switzerland, Calvinist, England, Anglican. You had Anabaptists and Mennonites and so forth. And uh, if you did not believe the way your king did, it was considered treason. And so suddenly Europe is thrown into this mass migration of people picking up and leaving and going from one part to the other simply for conscience sake. And those were the ones that spilled over and founded colonies in America. Now, a little backdrop. So uh, prior to the Islamic invasion and the Reformation, all of Western Europe was Catholic. After the Reformation and the Muslim invasion, you have different kings believing different things. So northern Germany and Sweden are Lutheran. Switzerland Calvinist, Scotland Presbyterian, Holland Dutch Reform, Greece was Greek Orthodox, uh, Spain, Portugal, France, Austria, Italy, Poland, Ireland remain Catholic, and England Anglican. And you say, what does this have to do with me? Yeah, well, the freedoms we enjoy today had traced their roots back to this time period. So it was one Christian denomination per country in Europe, and what the king believed, the kingdom had to believe. And if you didn't, you were persecuted and you fled. And so let's look at England. England had a king named Henry VIII. He was married to the daughter of the king of Spain, Catherine of Aragon. But after 18 years, she does not have a son. A daughter married, but not a son. So Henry decides to divorce her. The Pope will not recognize the divorce. So Henry, Henry decides to make himself his own Pope. <laughs> he starts the Church of England, puts himself on as the head, and he goes on to have six wives. And their fates were divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So Henry VIII was not a really nice guy to be married to. He ended up being around 400 pounds. 
He would only eat meat. His diet every day was pork and chicken and pigs and beef. And he thought vegetables and fruit were sissy food. I mean, and he ended up getting gout in his legs. You know how guys show off their biceps today? Back then, guys showed off their calves, their lower legs. And so they would wear these tight stockings, but they didn't have elastic, so they'd tie it. And so he cut off the circulation in his legs, and he ended up getting all his sores, and he needed his leg amputated, but none of the doctors would uh, tell him that. You, know, you tell him to, no, I'm not going to tell him to chop off his leg. You tell him, no, no. So they didn't, and he dies. So anyway, so Henry VIII, when he decided to break from Rome, his advisors said, uh, you need an English Bible. As long as you're using the Latin Bible, everybody's going to look toward Italy in, in Rome. The German princes have Martin Luther's German Bible, and that helped them to break away from Rome. You need an English Bible. It just so happens a few years earlier, Henry VIII had William Tyndall burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. But now that he needs an English Bible, they basically take William Tyndall's work and polish it up and call it the Great Bible. Now, you can see the little strip of words coming out of his mouth. William Tyndall's last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And so here, this King of England decides, I want to break from Rome, I need an English Bible. And so they, they take William Tyndall's work, turn it into the Great Bible, and the engraved front page has Henry on his throne, passing the Bible to the clergy and laity. They print thousands of copies, and they put it in every church in England. It's the first time that the English people have access to the Bible in their own language. You know, there were some scholarly translations in English, you know, but the common people didn't read it. This one they could read. It was called the Chained Bible because they would chain it to the pulpit because it was really valuable. But people got to take turns and go up and read the thing. So Henry dusts his hands and says, that's it. We broke from Rome. We got our English Bible. But something unexpected happened. People began to read it and began to compare what's in the Bible to this king divorcing and beheading his wives and claiming to be the head of Christ's church. And so uh, here he, um, what, uh, his attitude was, yes, you can read the Bible in your own language, but no, you can't believe whatever you want. You got to believe what I tell you to believe. I'm the king, right? What the king believes, the kingdom had to believe. And so if you have five people meeting in your home and you are talking religion without approval of the king, the government, they will bust into your house and arrest everybody. You're all criminals. If you're caught preaching within five miles of a, of a town without a license from the king, you're a criminal. And they, um, uh, so here's King James, and he's the head of the Anglican church. And there's another group. Uh, this is the monarch and the archbishop of Canterbury and the bishops and the deaneries and the vicars and rectors and curates. A lot of terms I'm not familiar with. But this is a hierarchy. The king is the head of the Anglican church. Just to give you a little insight into their attitudes, here's King James. Kings are God's lieutenants upon earth, sit upon God's throne. The king is the overlord of the whole land. Master over every person, having power over the life and death of everyone. I mean, these kings thought they didn't believe that all men were created equal. They believed they were created a little extra special. And um, anyway, so when the Muslims invade Greece, Greek scholars flee with their Greek New Testaments west. The scholars can now translate the Bible, not just Latin, but to Greek. And they see Greek words with new shades of meaning that they hadn't noticed before. One of the words was ecclesia. 
it's the Greek word that has been translated church, but it, um, and so Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock I'll build my church. In Greek, that word church is ecclesia. And um, so the first complete Bible printed in the English language was, was William Tyndall's. The word ecclesia doesn't appear, at a, 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 it's a translated assembly or congregation. The word church doesn't appear. And so ek means out of, ecclesia means a calling, and the Greeks, because it's a Greek word, it's the Greek word for Athens. They'd call everybody out of their home, 6,000 citizens, and they'd all come together in the marketplace, and they would decide what's going to happen in the city. And so when um, uh, it's a called-out assembly of the people into some public place for the purpose of deliberating, and it goes back to ancient Israel. That first 400 years when they came out of Egypt, they didn't have a king. And every town got to elect their own city elders, and then they would send representatives to the Sanhedrin, but it was this bottom-up thing. And so Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my ecclesia. Uh, King James insisted that the word ecclesia be translated church rather than congregation or assembly. But a lot of the Protestant reformers were saying, no, matter of fact, it gave birth to the congregational denomination. And some denominations are, you know, assemblies or so forth. And... Um, uh, but so the king wanted to be the head, and how can you be the head of an assembly when the people have a say in what's going to happen? And so, um, uh, so a group starts that wants to purify the Church of England, and they're nicknamed Puritans. The king doesn't like them because he doesn't think he needs purifying. And then there's another group that said it's beyond hope of trying to purify this government church. We are going to separate ourselves. And they would meet in secret in barns and basements, and we call them pilgrims. And they... Now, if you're arrested by the government for having a Bible study, you're drugged before the star chamber. It's a room with stars on the ceiling, and they would twist your arm and cut off your ear and cut your nose in half and brand you on the face as a heretic. Ah, and then they put you in a pillory in the middle of town. And um, anyway, so during this time, there's a one of the founders of the Baptist faith in England. So he's not an Anglican. He's one of these separatist groups. And his name is Thomas Hellwise. And he is put in the notorious London Newgate Prison. And uh, they do not feed you when you're in prison. Uh, you have to have somebody that misses you and says, hey, where's Joe? And then they bring you the food. And um, the king didn't want him printing his pamphlets. And so they wouldn't give him a pen or a paper. But one of his friends uh, would bring him a bottle of milk. But instead of a cork, he would have a wad of paper. And he would unfold the paper, take a splinter, dip it in the milk, and he would write out his pamphlets. And it would dry, and it would be clear. He would carefully fold it back up, stick it in the empty bottle. Of course, he'd drink some of it. And then he would put it outside of his cell door, and his friend would take it home and unfold the paper and hold it over a candle. Just high enough so the heat of the candle wouldn't burn the paper, but it would turn the milk brown. And now they could see what he wrote, and they would print his pamphlets. And um, well, what did his pamphlets say? Well, here's one. The king is a mortal man and not God. Therefore, he hath no power over the mortal soul of his subjects to make laws and ordinances for them to set spiritual lords over them. If the king's people obey all humane laws made by the king, our lord the king can require no more. For men's religion to God is betwixt God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it. Neither may the king be judged between God and man. Well, 
One of the Baptist founders of America was John Leland, and he said the same thing this way, every man must give account of himself to God. Therefore, every man ought to be at liberty to serve God in a way that he can best reconcile to his conscience. If government can answer for individuals at the day of judgment, let men be controlled by it in religious matters. Otherwise, let men be free. In other words, if the king can stand there on the day of judgment and answer for your conscience, fine, believe whatever he tells you to believe. But if he's not going to be there on the day of judgment, you have to account to God for your own conscience. Well, you can see where the kings didn't like these type of things going around. And so that's why the king would lock him up. Now, the Baptists write a letter to Thomas Jefferson, his famous separation of church and state letter. He writes back and he says, gentlemen, believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God. The wall was to keep the government from coming in and telling you what you had to believe and what songs you had to sing and what, and what, what church service and who your pastor was going to be and IRS audit. I mean, it was telling that they, the government couldn't send spies in there and snitch on your Bible study. It was to keep the government away from uh, interfering with your relationship with God. Now, you can obviously see it's been twisted totally around nowadays, but this is what the original way was. So Virginia was founded 1607, and it was an Anglican colony with the king as the head. And um, uh, in propagating of Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness, this was their first charter, and then they're, they're, uh, they grew tobacco. And they, back in England, they thought it was healthy for you. Why? Because the Indians smoked it with the peace pipes, and the Indians are really healthy. And if they smoke it, it must be good for you. <laughs> and so this was a craze in England. Doctors would even prescribe tobacco. <laughs> and um, so anyway, in Virginia, they're growing all this tobacco. It's their cash crop. And uh, I saw this in the Virginia law book. It says 1624. Virginia Assembly, whosoever shall absent himself from divine service any Sunday without an allowable excuse shall forfeit a pound of tobacco. <laughs> we miss you at church on Sunday. Uh, tobacco, <laughs> pay off. <laughs> but it had to be at, at the Church of England. It says, there shall be a uniformity in our church as near as may be to the canons in England. So you couldn't believe whatever you wanted. And... Um, then it says, we should be loath that any person should be permitted to pass that we suspected to affect the superstitions of the Church of Rome. What's that? Catholic. There were no Catholics allowed. Of course, there were no uh, any other denomination allowed. But do you know when the first Catholic church in Virginia was? 1795. After the Revolution, after the Constitution, after the Bill of Rights. Why? Because it was an Anglican colony. It was one denomination per colony. Similar to Europe, it was one denomination per country. And um, Second Charter of Virginia, none shall be permitted to pass in any voyage into the said country, but such as shall first take the oath of supremacy. What's that? I declare that the King's Highness is the only supreme governor of this realm in all spiritual or ecclesiastical things. The word ecclesiastical means church, church things. And um, anyway... So, and so the king, you had to say that the king was the head of the church. If not, it was considered treason. And um, so the pilgrims, they flee from England. They got tired of getting their, you know, ears chopped off, or whatever. They flee to Holland. And then Spain threatens to attack Holland, so they want to flee again. And they want to come to the, they, they were going to go to Guyana, South America. But they heard about the Spanish wiping out settlements. So they said, let's go to Virginia and we'll be 3,000 miles from the king and we can do our little pilgrim thing and, and he won't notice. 
Well, they're going to do that, and um, they get blown off course in a storm. Uh, and they land, 102 of them, uh, and they land in Massachusetts, and they're 500 miles away from Jamestown, Virginia. And you think, no big deal, just sail down the coast. Well, it's wintertime, it's stormy. And off the coast of Cape Cod, it's really shallow. The sand goes out really far. 3,000 ships have wrecked off of Cape Cod. It's called a graveyard of ships. And the pilgrims almost sink. And the, the captain says, this is too dangerous to do any more sailing. We're going back to Plymouth Rock. And everybody off the boat. And the pilgrims have a question. They say, well, who's going to be in charge of us? The whole world is ruled by kings. And we were going to submit to the king's government there. So they do the Mayflower Compact. And they say, we, it says, having undertaken for ye glory of God and, and advancement of ye Christian faith, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. The Mayflower Compact goes on. We, in ye presence of God, covenant ourselves into a civil body politic to enact just and equal laws as shall be thought most meet or necessary unto which we promise all due submission. Simple revolutionary the whole world is ruled by kings, and this is a little Bible study group saying, hey, we're going to create our own government, and we're going to pass laws that we all agree upon, and we're going to submit to the laws. And um, it was actually a polarity change in the flow of power. Instead of top-down rule by this globalist king, because the king of England had this global empire, it's a bottom-up. It's, it's the people deciding what the laws are going to be. And uh, it's the difference between... Uh, dead pyramid rule from the top down to a living tree where every root and every little capillary root sucks in nutrients to help keep the thing alive. Every single person is needed to help make this thing work. And so the thought is, where did the pilgrims get this idea that they could have a government without a king and they could all rule themselves? From their pastor, John Robinson. He was one of the founders of the Congregationalist Church where the church model was the, the, the church members participate, right? They do stuff instead of it being laity and clergy and the laity's lazy and sit back and the clergy does all the work and the, they're, they're breaking their back. Everybody gets involved in the ministry. Everybody gets involved in it. And, um, and so this painting hangs in our U.S. Capitol. The word compact means covenant. And so it's not just the people all getting involved. It's the people in covenant with each other. And... Um, this came out of that congregation, that word ecclesia. And um, the reformers studied it a whole lot. And here's pastor of the pilgrims, John Robinson. Pilgrims are knit together as a body in covenant of the Lord. So we hold ourselves tied to care for each other's good. So it's not just all the citizens get to vote. No, we care about each other. We love each other. And that's, then we make the laws that benefit everybody. And um, so the pilgrims come across and uh, they have their covenant congregational form of church government that they turn into their community government. This is like a century before Europe's Age of Enlightenment. You go to secular schools, the Founding Fathers got all their ideas from the Age of Enlightenment. No, this is a century before that. And these are, you know, Protestant pastors, you know, or Puritans fleeing the Anglicans. And so, a covenant is people in agreement with each other, they get their rights from God, they're accountable to God. And um, so, uh, the pilgrims land, and they're there for 10 years, and the Puritans come over. Now, again, the Puritans are inside of the Anglican church trying to purify it. The pilgrims are separatists where they've left it. And so the Puritans come over. There was just a couple hundred pilgrims, but there's 16,000 Puritans in a 10-year period. It's called the Great Puritan Migration. They fled into Massachusetts, and they have a change of heart. 
And once they get here, they say, wait a second, maybe it's not such a bad thing that the government tell the church how to have church because we're in charge of the government, right? We're the Puritans, we're in charge of Massachusetts, so maybe it's okay that we, the government tell everybody how to have church because we're in charge. And so some of the dissenting pastors, this is Justice Black, Engel versus Vitale, when some of the very groups which had most strenuously opposed the established Church of England found themselves sufficiently in control of colonial governments, they passed laws making their own religion, the official religion of their respective colonies. So they're sort of repeating the heirs of Europe. So, you know, the New York Dutch Reform were chasing out the Lutherans and the Virginia Anglicans were chasing out the Quakers. Everybody's, you know. And so the non-conforming pastors in Massachusetts decided to flee again. And so you have a pastor, John Lothrop, and his church flee and found Barnstable, Massachusetts. A pastor, John Wheelwright, and his church flee and found Exeter, New Hampshire. And a Reverend Thomas Hooker and his church flee and found Hartford, Connecticut. And a Reverend Roger Williams and his church flee and found Providence, Rhode Island. And um, anyway, so Thomas Hooker, they settled Connecticut, called the Constitution State. His church members come to him and say, how do we do the government thing? He says, we do it the same way the church did. And so Thomas, this is a plaque in England. Thomas Hooker, founder of the state of Connecticut, father of American democracy. They're saying this, this pastor is the father of this bottom-up form of government. Here's another plaque in England. Thomas Hooker, Puritan clergyman, reputed father of American democracy. And um, his, his statue holding a Bible is on the Capitol grounds in Hartford, Connecticut. The base of the statue, it says, leading his people through the wilderness, he founded Hartford. On this site, he preached the sermon, which inspired the fundamental orders. It was the first constitution that created a government. Another plaque in Hartford. Does Thomas Hooker preached his famous sermon, the foundation of authority is laid in the free consent of the people. And that the people passed the fundamental orders, their constitution, which they used up until 1818. Another plaque in Hartford. They have lots of plaques in Hartford. It says, uh, Thomas Hooker's congregation established the form of government upon which the present constitution of the United States is modeled. Here, his church government is the model for their government government. And of course, where did he get the idea? The Bible, what part of the Bible? Ancient Israel, those first 400 years when Israel came out of Egypt before they got King Saul. It's the book of Judges period. It's a 400-year time. And it sort of looks like chaos when you read the stories. But it's the first time in world history where there's a nation with millions of people and no king. The people get a chance. And each person is taught the law. And I get into it more in the book, uh, Who is the King? But um, here's Rhode Island. Pastor Roger Williams. The government in this island is a popular government. That is to say, it is power in the body of free men orderly assembled. So in New England, instead of separation of church and state, it was the pastors and their churches that created the state. How could you say, pastor, don't get involved in government, when it's the pastor's sermon in Connecticut that is their government, their fundamental orders? How could you say church members don't get involved in politics, when all there was in Hartford was the church members? And of course, politics come from the, comes from the word polis, which means city like Metropolis, Annapolis, Minneapolis. Apollos means city. And so politics is just simply the business of the city. And so uh, Calvin Coolidge says, the principles which went into the Declaration of Independence are found in the sermons of the early colonial clergy. They preached equality because they believed in the fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man, in order that they might have freedom to express these thoughts and opportunities to put them into action. Whole congregations with their pastors migrated to the colonies. So each colony was founded by a different Christian denomination. 
Virginia was Anglican, Massachusetts was Puritan, Connecticut was Congregationalist, Thomas Hooker, and New Hampshire was Congregationalist, Rhode Island was Baptist, Reverend Roger Williams. They have a New England Confederation of these early colonies. Uh, the United New England colonies entered into a league of friendship for preserving and propagating the gospel. And then New York was founded by the Dutch Reformed. And um, then uh, they passed a law, there shall be no within the territory practice no other form of divine worship than that of the Reformed religion. It was Dutch Reformed. And um, then it's taken over by the British and turned into New York. Uh, Delaware, New Jersey were originally Swedish Lutheran colonies. And then Maryland was originally a Catholic colony. And um, Pennsylvania, William Penn decided to do an experiment. He decided to see if Christians of different denominations could live together in the same geographic area. Wow, what a novel experiment. The other colonies were, if you don't like our denomination, fine, start your own colony. Here he's like, no, let's see if we can all be together even though we don't go to the same church. And um, William Penn said, no person who shall acknowledge one almighty God to be a creator and upholder and ruler of the world shall in any case be molested or prejudiced in his or her conscience, a, a conscientious persuasion or practice. So all you gotta do is believe in almighty God and you get the freedom. And then he goes on, but shall freely and fully enjoy his or her Christian liberty. And uh, North Carolina was Anglican, South Carolina plain Protestant, Georgia Protestant. And um, so um, Roger Williams founds Rhode Island, and um, he uh, is known for standing up for freedom of conscience, an exile for his devotion to freedom of conscience. And another plaque there in, in Providence, Rhode Island. And it talks about, um, Shelter, the place of providence, the shelter of a person distressed of conscience. Another one, distressed of conscience. Uh, to Roger Williams, an exile for his devotion to freedom of conscience. Uh, Jefferson writes to the Baptist, adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of rights of conscience. And then uh, he founds the first Baptist church in America in 1638. Roger Williams says, persecution for the cause of conscience is, the mo is most contrary to the doctrines of Christ Jesus, the Prince of Peace. God requireth not a uniformity of religion to be enacted and enforced in any civil state. Enforced uniformity is the greatest occasion of civil war, ravishing conscience, persecution of Christ Jesus and his servants. So Roger Williams writes the letter, um, it's called the persecution of conscience, a bloody practice of persecuting people for their conscience. And in that letter, he says there's, a wall, there's supposed to be a wall of separation between the church and the state to keep the government from coming in and persecuting people's consciences and telling them they have to believe this or they're going to be burned at the stake. And uh, that's the letter that Jefferson quotes back to the Baptists later. So the wall of separation is to keep the government out. Now, the little theological background to this that I want to explore. Um, in New England, they, the pastors had this understanding that Jesus himself never forced anybody to follow him. Here's Jesus himself. On the, he didn't say, believe in me or I'm going to chop your head off. He actually said something difficult and many disciples walked with him no more and said, this is a difficult saying, who can bear it? He turns to Peter and says, you want to go too? And Peter says, well, where else can I go? You're the only one with the words of eternal life. Jesus was willing to, to let him go. And if you look at it, it's right after he multiplied loaves and fishes. People are following him for a free lunch. And it's almost like he's saying something difficult that he knows they're going to have trouble with to try to shake away those that are following him for the wrong reason. 
I'm the bread of life. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, right? And they're like, we can't understand this. They leave. I said, okay, you were following me for that free life. I want people that really follow. And um, so anyway, if Jesus never forced anyone to follow him, we can't. It's not like Europe. It's not Christianity in Europe where the king tells you what to believe. Now, let's, let's pretend even if the king had the absolute perfect doctrine, but you followed it because you're following it because he's threatening to chop your head off if you don't follow it. The founders in America said, look, your worship of God is only of value to God if it is freely given. And so this permeates our constitutions of the different states, and it always talks about dictates of conscience and so forth. William Penn said, force makes hypocrites, tis persuasion only that makes converts. And um, anyway, so the thought is, um, um, I'm going to skip past some stuff just for the sake of time. So at the time of the founding, the 98% of the country was Protestant. Nine of the 13 colonies had to be a Protestant to hold state office. Um, and then only 1% of the country was Catholic at the time of the revolution. Uh, the Catholics were only allowed in three states, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New York. And there's only one-tenth of 1% Jewish in America at the time of the founding. And here's New Jersey's first constitution. All persons professing the faith, belief in the faith of any Protestant sect shall be capable of holding office. Georgia, representatives shall be chosen out of each county. They shall be of the Protestant religion. South Carolina, the Christian Protestant religion shall be deemed the established religion of the state. Massachusetts, the legislature shall authorize support and maintenance of public Protestant teachers of piety and religion. That's the beginning of the public school system. The legislature authorizes public support for Protestant teachers. And um, New Hampshire, first constitution, says uh, 1784, the, no person shall be capable of being elected who's not of the Protestant religion. Nine of the original states, you had to be a Protestant to hold office. Now, um, uh, there were, Delaware was a liberal state. All you had to do to hold office in Delaware was believe, I profess faith in God the Father, Jesus Christ is only Son, the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore. You say, that's liberal? Yeah, because you could be any denomination of Protestant and even Catholic and believe that. Virginia's original constitution is mutual duty of all the practice, Christian forbearance, love, and charity, not Islamic or Buddhist or whatever. It's Pennsylvania, Ben Franklin signed the constitution for Pennsylvania. It said, each member shall subscribe, I believe in one God, creator and governor of the universe, and acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. You say, that's liberal? Yeah, because you could be any denomination of Protestant and even Catholic and believe that. Yeah, I believe the Bible's inspired. In other words, they not only had to lay their hand on a Bible to swear into office, they had to swear they believed in the Bible in order to hold office. Because the idea of an oath is you're calling a higher power to hold you accountable to keep you from doing dirty backroom deals. And um, so, like in Europe, Christian denominations didn't get along. They chased each other out of each other's colonies. But then when the revolution started, they all had to work together against the King of England. Sort of like that piece of Augsburg in 1555, where the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor had to work together with the Protestants to stop the Islamic invasion. So the bigger threat says, look, let's work together. And so the 13 colonies in America said, look, we're all against the king. we got to have a little give and take with each other. And so after the revolution, the attitude was, we may not always agree on religion, but you were willing to fight and die for my freedom. I need to let you practice your faith. So that's when they began to tolerate each other. And religion was under each state's jurisdiction. And the states expanded religion at their own speeds. Sort of like a racetrack with 13 lanes. Some states expanded it really fast and others took their time. And so um, here's an example. North Carolina, originally, 
said, no person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion is capable of holding office. That was 1776. 1835, they changed it to no person who shall deny the being of God or the Christian religion shall hold office. What does that mean? That means Catholics can hold office. A bunch of Irish potato famine people came over, about a million of them came across. And then in 1868, North Carolina changed it to say, look, the following persons shall be disqualified for office, any person who shall deny the being of Almighty God. So now all you got to do is believe in God to hold office in North Carolina. So it goes, drop a pebble in the pond, the ripples go out first. It's, you know, it was an Angl Anglican colony, and then it's Protestant, and then it's anybody that's a Christian, and now all you got to do is believe in God. Another colony to look at is Maryland. Their original constitution says no other test is required to hold office than a declaration of belief in the Christian religion. Well, a bunch of Jews are persecuted in Bavaria. They come across. In 1851, they add, they just add, it says, and if the party shall profess to be a Jew, the declaration shall be of his belief in a future state of rewards and punishments. So you could hold office in Maryland in 1851 if you were a Christian or a Jew. What about the atheists? Uh, they couldn't hold office. Right? And uh, um, so we've got federal government, state government. Religion was under state's jurisdiction. Here's Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, 1833. The whole power over the subject of religion is left exclusively to state governments to be acted on according to their own sense of justice and their state constitutions. And so today, some states have marijuana, others don't. Some states have underage drinking, others don't. Some states have smoking bans and gambling, others don't. Some states, Nevada, has prostitution. Thank God the rest don't. Back then, some states gave a little more religious freedom and other states had blue laws where everything was closed on Sunday. But it was up to the people in each state to decide. And it wasn't until evolution comes along and they said species can evolve and a Harvard professor, Christopher Columbus Langdell, said laws can evolve and they began to come up with this evolutionary case precedent theory of law and they gradually evolved it into what we have today. But, so just recapping, so you first have tolerance only, well, how'd you like that? I must have pressed the magic button there. And uh, <laughs> let me go back to um, the, the point I was getting at. So uh, first there's tolerance only for the denomination that starts the colony. Then it goes out to Protestants. Then it goes out to Catholics, especially after the Irish potato famine. And then it goes out to liberal Christians and new denominations that are starting. Then it goes out to Jews after a persecution in Bavaria. And then it goes out to uh, monotheists. All you got to do is believe in God. And then it goes out to atheists, and then the LGBTQ and Muslims, and guess what? The last ones in are wanting to kick the first ones out. So it's backfired, right? So just about everybody's tolerated in America except the Christians that founded the country. Now, I uh, want to just uh, sort of come back to one point uh, and then uh, come to a conclusion. Will Roger Williams, founder of Rhode Island, enforce uniformity is the greatest occasion of civil war and ravishing of conscience persecution. So, so it's not the government's job to force you to believe the perfect doctrine. So the idea was keep the government's hands out and let the, the church and then the people within each state decide. And so Jefferson, in recapping his separation of church and state letters, says, gentlemen, believing with you, religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God. God is a jealous God. And he wants a personal relationship with each person he doesn't want the government inserting itself between you and him. And God is a God of love. And we say that flippantly, but he loves you like a groom loves a bride. Because the church is the bride of Christ. I don't know about you, but most grooms get jealous if their bride is spending more time with another man. 
So God loves us with a jealous love. The Old Testament says, I'm the Lord, my name is jealous. So yes, he loves you, but he loves you with a jealous love. And, um, and he wants you to love him back. The more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back. Now, he does not need your love any more than parents do not need the love of their children. But they want it. God doesn't need our love. He's not incomplete in any way. He doesn't need it, but he wants it. Think of it. He exists for eternity. He knows everything. There's nothing that exists other than he, did, he made it. So if anything were to show him any affection, it's because he programmed it to show him affection. Right? It's like having a little robot dog that comes up and licks your hand. He, he programmed it to do that. So it's not really love. So here he, he, he creates everything and everything obeys him. The little atoms, the electrons, the neutrons, the quarks, the, the, the apple seeds make, make apples because he programmed it to make an apple seed. And, and then the universe, the orbits, the planetary, everything does what he planned it to do. And it's like, okay, been there, done that. I can make things that obey me. I want something that can love me which means he has to give us the opportunity not to love him in order for the choice to love him to be a choice. And so he creates us. And so he's jealous for a personal relationship with each person, and he doesn't want the government inserting itself in there. And um, anyway, so you read the book of Genesis, and chapter 1, Adam and Eve sinned and they hid from God. Have you ever sinned against anybody? You sort of don't want to be around the person you've sinned against. Let's say you're talking about somebody behind their back, and you're joking about them, making fun of them, and all of a sudden you look up, and that very person is walking down the hall toward you. Question, are you drawn to want to go over to that person? Or like, oh, great, I was just talking to them. I think I'm going to slip out the back. Your own conscience does not want you to be around the person you've sinned against. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they're the ones that wanted to hide. It's like two magnets that are stuck together and one of them turns. The first one wants to touch, but the second one wants to get away. So it's not so much that God sends people to hell. It's once people sin against God, their own conscience doesn't want to come into his presence. They're uncomfortable in his presence. They want to get away. So Adam and Eve says, man, we blew it. We have to do something to make ourselves acceptable to God again and they put on fig leaves. That was the beginning of false religions. Man coming up with man's own idea how to make man acceptable to God again. Did the fig leaves make Adam and Eve acceptable to God? No. And this little line, God made Adam and Eve coats of skins. We read it really fast, but if you think of it, how do you make a coat of skin? Kill an animal. You think God went to the other side of the garden and killed an animal and brought Adam and Eve some nice tailored outfits? Or do you think maybe he killed the animal right in front of them and they witnessed the first death ever, right? Creation just happened, so this is the first thing ever to die. And Adam and Eve are standing there shocked watching this innocent animal go through the pangs of dying and they are thinking to themselves, we're the ones that sinned, but this innocent animal is the one that's dying. And God wanted to make it really clear that this animal was dying in their place. That right in front of them, he strips the skin off the animal and he puts it on their naked bodies. Maybe it still had some blood on it. They were covered in the blood. 
And so for the rest of their lives, they are wearing the skin of that animal that they watched die in their place. And whenever God sees Adam and Eve, he sees them clothed with the skin of the animal, the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So Adam and Eve tell Cain and Abel. Cain decides he wants to worship God, but he does an offshoot of the church of the fig leaf. He starts the church of the fruits and the nuts, right? It's, it's a religion of works. And we know Cain's religion is a religion of works because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. So here's Cain sweating, working, planting and harvesting, getting all his wheat and barley. It takes a long time. Gets it all together and he piles all of his works on the altar. Did his works make him acceptable to God? No. And Abel did the lamb thing. And it's this picture. God is on one side. We are on the other side. Our sins separate us from God. And the lamb pays for the sin. And so Abraham offered lambs. Moses had every family in Israel kill a lamb, put the blood over the doorpost of the house. The high priest brought the blood of the lamb into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. The blood actually changed it from a judgment seat into a mercy seat. If you're approaching God without the blood, you're asking for him to judge you against the... Finally, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So God is on one side, we are on the other side, our sin separates from God, and the Lamb pays for the sin. So I ask people, are you approaching God as Cain or as Abel? If you are still hoping you're good enough to go to heaven, you are approaching God as Cain. I hope I piled enough good works on the altar. Maybe a, a couple more handfuls of barley, that'll do it. Or are you approaching God as Abel? It's not me, it's this lamb that took the punishment for all of my sins in my place. Now, why did the lamb have to die? God is a just God, and he cannot help it. It is his very nature. He's, when that means he has to judge every sin, even the smallest, tiniest sin. If he does not judge a sin, he's effectively, effectively giving consent to the sin. If you think of the, the old wedding ceremonies, you know, anybody against this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. If you are holding your peace, you are giving consent to the wedding. If there's sins going on and God is not judging them and he's silent, he's actually giving consent to the sin. And guess what? He's not going to give consent to sin. So he has to judge it. It's in his very nature. He's a God of rules and orders. He makes the little electrons and neutrons and atoms and, and cells and animals and, and, and the universe. He makes every, everything. He has laws and orders. He's a God of laws. And he has laws for human behavior. We just have the choice as to whether or not we're going to follow the law. But the laws are still there. So, so God is a just God. He has to judge every sin. And so... Um, it's been implanted in each of us so much that, that every police drama you see on TV, NCIS or whatever, starts off with an injustice done in the first two minutes. Some innocent person is killed. And you are held captive for an entire hour wanting the person that did it to be brought to justice. He's got to be caught. He's got to get, get justice. They've got to get him. So in the first two minutes of the book of Genesis, an injustice is done. Cain kills Abel. And God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What was it crying? An injustice is done, innocent guy killed. 
You're a just God. You've got to judge the guy that did it. And so that's the only side of God that the devil knew. So here's Lucifer, beautiful angel, puffed up with pride, wants to put his throne higher than the throne of God, wants to kick God out of heaven. God said, you have sinned against me. You're out of here. And so, so here's Satan. The only side of God he knows is he's a just God. You sin against him, you get judged. And so Satan goes into the garden and sees Adam and Eve. He says, ha, if I can get them to sin against God one time, God will have to judge him. Gets him to sin, that was easy, easy enough, stands back, says, ha, you're just God, you gotta judge him. Like he did in the book of Job, right? And Satan comes before, you're not really a just God. The reason Job is so good is because you play favorites. You're not really a just God. You're playing favor. Take away all those favors and then he'll deny you. But, you, but that's what the book of Job's all about. You know, you're not really a just God. So when Adam and Eve sinned, the devil's like, okay, God, you got to judge him. So God sends this fireball of judgment, but in steps the lamb that takes the hit. So God is just in that he judges every sin. He's love in that he himself provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. If Adam and Eve would have come up with the idea of the lamb, they still wouldn't have known if it worked. It's God himself that provided the lamb. Jesus. Now, when you um, read the book of Revelation, and I'm excited about Pastor Owsley's study of the book of Revelation, and, uh, and I encourage everyone to go. And I, um, uh, it, it needs explanations to how, try to, but one of the things that seems clear to me, it's God that's pouring out the vials of judgment in the book of Revelation. There's the book there and the lamb comes and he breaks the seal and the angel throws the censer to the earth and the judgment comes and, and then it says, uh, the angels cry, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And it says, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Why? Once and for all, for the rest of eternity, God has to settle the score and judge every sin that he missed along the way so there won't need to be any more judgment from that point on. But in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. He took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross. That's why he was sweating drops of blood in the garden. It says, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. He experienced that day of judgment as if it was a thousand years. And if you think of it as a scale, an eternal being who is innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all the finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who is innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all the finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Jesus literally suffered the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced it. And there wasn't any other eternal innocent being up there. It's just God and his son. And Jesus, out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me, became the lamb. You know when Pilate came to him and says, um, aren't you going to talk to me? Don't you know I have the power to release you or let you go? And Jesus was like holding his peace. You know, it's like, I'm convinced if Jesus would have wanted to, he could have, he's, he was so brilliant, he could have talked his way out of it. I mean, Pilate actually sort of wanted to let him go. Jesus could have got out of it, but he, he shut his mouth. Why? Because he says, 
My purpose is to be the lamb. That's the brilliance of the prophecies. Prophecies are, are not clear enough so the devil can't figure them out, but clear enough so that after it happens, you can see through the row of the cornfield that he was promised all the way back through the centuries. Because when Pilate, I mean, uh, Herod uh, had the three wise men come, and they said, where worship the king, king of the Jews? He goes to the scribes. Where's this king supposed to be born? When he tells them Bethlehem, what was Herod's response? Kill all the kids in Bethlehem. So if the devil could figure out the prophecies, he'd try to stop them. So anyway, but here we are. God is just in that he judges every sin. He's love in that he himself provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. As long as you are hoping you're good enough to go to heaven. You will always have this nagging thought in the back of your head, did I do enough? And that very thought will cause you to hesitate running to the Lord. So if, if it was just the Lord was here, you were here, and you see him, it's like, it's like if you owe somebody money and you don't have it to pay him back, and you really like the person, but they're, oh, you see him, it's like, oh, I want to go over and say hi, but I don't have the money, and I, oh, I, I, I'll, just, I'll just see him later. Right? As long as, you, as long as you think your relationship with God is based on you doing something, you're always going to think, did I do enough? And it's always going to cause you to hesitate, and you're going to stay away. The very moment you believe that it's all been paid, that Jesus paid every debt, you mean there's nothing left to pay? No, it's all been paid. You mean I don't owe him anything? No, you don't owe him anything. You mean he's not mad at me for something I did? No, no, it's all been paid for. All of it, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed you from your sins. He's cast him into the depths of the sea. You mean really? It's, it's, it's really all been paid? Yeah, there's nothing left to keep you away from God. You really? And you can run and embrace the Lord. Your polarity flips around and you connect. You know, and like a piece of magnet that comes toward a metal, it ends up getting magnetized. And the magnetism of that big magnet flows through you. And so then you begin to share the love of God with people. Right? You're still you, but he's living through you. His magnetism is reaching out and loving other people through you. So today, if you've not yet totally put all your faith and trust that Jesus paid for it all, then just take that step. Just take the step and say, Jesus, I trust that you paid for it all. You've been prophesied as the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. I'm trusting that God sent you and you're the lamb again, and that you're sufficient, your sacrifice was sufficient. And I get transformed, my, magnetism, my polarity changes, and now it's you that's living through me. And I do the good things, not thinking I'm going to earn my way back into your presence like Cain, Right? I'm, I'm doing the good things because you've already accepted me and now it's your spirit in me that's reaching out. Anyway, I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor. God bless you.